Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Research. I'm Professor Trish Ray, and this podcast is one of our series from the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Professor Emeritus Royston Greenwood, whose fields of research focus on organization theory, with particular attention to the dynamics of organizational and institutional change. Royston's work has been published in all the major organizational journals, and his record of citations is truly outstanding. In fact, Royston has ranked five times in the top 1% of the world's most influential scientific minds in the category of business and economics. He has published nearly 100 journal articles and more than 50 book chapters and books. Clearly, Royston is an exceptionally strong leader in the field of organization theory, and it's a real pleasure to welcome you here today. Thank you for joining me, Royston. You're very welcome. I'm glad you were willing to come and be part of this podcast series. So, Royston, you've written many excellent papers, and they're highly acclaimed. But today I want to focus on one of those papers and also talk a bit about your overall program of research. So first, to get started, let's talk about the article that you published in 2010 in Organization Science with co-authors Amalia Diaz, Stan Lee, and Jose Lorente. The title is The Multiplicity of Institutional Logics and the Heterogeneity of Organizational Responses. It's actually one of my favorite articles because I think that it's really important in understanding some of the longer-term patterns of change that sometimes don't get enough attention. So I'm wondering if you still like this article, if you can tell us a bit about why you like it. Well, do I still like it? Yes, I do, actually. In preparation for this little conversation we're having, I, I read it again, and I was quite surprised by some of the things that are in it. But I remember when we were writing it, the thing that really appealed to me was I was learning about Spanish history, and that is embedded in this paper. When I was trying to go to university in the 60s, I actually wanted to do English literature or history. I couldn't get in back there, so I had to do social sciences, which I don't regret, but I've always had that liking for history. Uh, And this paper is one that really captures, I think, a different kind of history to what we typically read in the management journals, which is very much North American. So speaking of not being North American, this paper is actually about uh, Spanish history. It is. Can you tell us a bit about that? Let, Let me tell you how this paper came about. So I was attending a conference in Barcelona, it may have been the EGOS conference, I can't remember, But I was invited by the University of Cadiz to visit there. I mean, their their universities are not funded quite as generously as ours, and therefore bringing somebody over from across the Atlantic, etc., is not something they can easily do. But if you're already there at a conference, they invited me down. I was delighted to do so and spent two or three days having a great time. It was funded by the the equivalent of the provincial government, But the condition was they had to let people from the area visit. And Amalia visited. Um, She was a doctoral student. And she had this idea about... She was really into HR and downsizing, i.e. employee layoffs, etc., which was 10, 30 years earlier forbidden under the Franco Mm. regime. So that's what she told me. 
So I started reading up about Franco. Um, I didn't realize that Spain at the time, when I was reading this stuff, Spain actually was not a democracy for just over 50% of the 20th century. So the theoretical focus of this paper is really about institutional logics. So can you tell us a bit about how institutional logics fit into explaining what happened over time? Yes, we, we use the term institutional logic because it was very prominent at that time we were doing it. I think, more importantly, it's really an institutional logic as a way of thinking about the world, seeing the world. It tells you about how to you should behave in the world, etc., what the important purposes are, etc. You don't need the term institutional logic necessarily to get that idea, but there are different ways of approaching things. And in Spain, what was happening was the state under Franco was actually very socialist, i.e. it was very socialist in the sense that people could not be laid off. Every male had to have a job, and they were not necessarily high-paying jobs, but the security was very... Uh, important, very different to North America, where <coughs> in, in current way of thinking about labour relations is if our if we if we're struggling financially, etc., you lay people off. Not in Spain at that time, you couldn't do that. That was quite intriguing to me. But then when Franco died, I think it was about 1975, 76, and the 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 more modern democracy took over. The regions varied in the extent to which they were still reflecting the Franco model of the state as opposed to the more modern North American style, if you like. So that's what got me interested in the way in which there'd be variations across regions in the application of different ways of thinking about labor relations. Okay, so usually we can think about this concept of institutional logics as principles, values, beliefs that guide Mm -hmm. the actions that you may be able to observe or read about or hear about. Um, And in this paper, one of the key things you talked about was that it's important to go beyond market-based logics. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that, that, that notion about multiple logics being in place. The 2010, when this paper came out, around about that time, there was a lot of interest in organisations that, that were struggling or coping with or not struggling with, maybe necessarily just just managing multiple logics. Two papers came out in 2010 on hybrid organisations, and that's like social enterprises, which are attempting to use the market logic to generate money, but for welfare purposes. So that whole idea about multiple logics in organisations was a central research question at that time. And the Spanish data allowed us to have a really complicated story because we were introducing the state logic, we were introducing family logic, we were introducing um, a kind of quasi-professional logic as well as the market logic and how there were differences across the country in the way organisations we're doing this. I ought to emphasize that I'm an org theorist, so I'm interested in organizations responding to these multiple pressures, etc. So so if I keep using the term organization, that's why. Because I think they're the most important collective vehicle in modern society. 
It's an important point, and certainly that comes out in much of your work, this focus on organizations and not forgetting them. Absolutely we... right, yeah. Um, so I want to talk just a little bit more about the contributions that you make, and one of the things that was very interesting to me is the geographical component. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? That was coming about in the literature. We were not the first to raise this. It's more associated with Chris Marquis and before that, Glaskowitz, who basically said, if you look at cities in the US, they'll do different things. And what I found intriguing is that the reason why cities vary, organizations inside the city, they are things like businessmen's clubs. And so chief executives or senior people from businesses interact in business clubs. And that's one way by which prevailing norms about how you ought to behave are reinforced, learned about, etc. So when we were doing the Spanish study, and it was I sort of trying to understand Spain, the, really we, I was became very aware of the regional variations in the way they at least talked about the way in which the important values that represent this part of Spain, etc. It was an obvious thing to do is to say, okay, uh, do they vary? Is there some kind of regional pressure that affects the way organizations that are primarily based in that region, that affects the way those organizations behave, which would explain why there'd be differences between, let's say, um, Almeria down in the south and Catalonia in the, in the north. Uh, so we were exploring, that was one of the things we were exploring. And there aren't very many papers that really still today take the geography and the context, the local context, very seriously. So I think that's one of the reasons why people find that an important paper. You're right. The, 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 the role of geography isn't something that is as well represented in the literature that I think it should be. There are people who have done it. I mean, Henry Grave has done stuff. Um, in Norway, and, and like I say, the Chris Marquis has been doing it. But yeah, we, we've understudied the way in which there can be differences between regions or towns, except the, the role of geography as a, as a funnel for social, cultural pressures is only represented. Okay, I agree with you totally. And I think that the other piece that I want to just mention to this paper in particular is the family logic. So can you tell us a bit more about how family was important in understanding the pattern of change? In many ways, are often geographically located. So I, I, I think it was a kind of, a, not a spillover, but a natural next bit. So when we're looking at the role of the state through regional governments and then organizations that are primarily in them, family business because they tend to sustain their uh, values over a period of time. If they came from during the Franco regime, they would have been, they would have been imprinted with that, uh, that approach and therefore they'd have sustained it. I think that was the way we were uh, exploring it. Yeah, I agree. I think that what this paper did was really help to show how there can be multiple logics at play, yeah. mm -hmm. how they interact with each other, and you had a great set of data that allowed you to do that and do it in a way that many people have cited and recognized mm. the value of. Yeah, let me, let me just say that, give all credit, that the data set was not mine. 
I mean, I do qualitative research. This was not qualitative research. This was quant. And the data set was, it was from Amalia. And I didn't analyze the data either. Uh, Stan Lee, who's a fun person to work with, um, he did the analysis. A little anecdote. Uh, he was staggered and resistant, but then surprised when I thought the way you analyzed that kind of data, you start with the hypothesis and test it. And he thought you looked at the data first mm -hmm. and got some feeling for it. Mm -hmm. And I insisted, no, 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 let's have some hypotheses. And he was staggered. I think three out of our, three of the first four hypotheses we looked at were supported, which shows the power of the theory, which is good. <laughs> Indeed. So this is a collaboration and yeah. one of many collaborations yeah. that you've had over the years. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe this is a good opportunity to kind of think about your program of research overall and how various ideas maybe have threads that went through and maybe some other things stand on their own. But can you talk a little bit about your longer program of research that's happened? Yeah, and uh, let, me, let me pick up on that word program. I started off doing research and I was guided uh, by Bob Heinings, who was a wonderful guide, superb academic in his own right. Uh, and I was very fortunate to be working with him. And I learned from him two things, uh, one of which was reinforced and I'll come back to. The first thing I, I learned from him was it's very important to, as, as he put it, know your rat i.e. you've got to understand the organizations you're looking at. So even though the Aston group that he was a member of were one of the first groups to do statistical analysis of organizations, um, they went into all their organizations. They didn't just collect data. They didn't use an already existing data set. They went into the organizations to generate statistical data, and then they analyzed it. But doing that enabled them to know your rat. And that's something that, that I learned, and the, so, which is why through my career until about the last 10, 15 years, primarily I've been looking at professional firms like law, law firms, accounting firms, consulting firms, uh, because you get to know that kind of organization and you can understand the data you're beginning to pick up. That's the, the first thing I would point out. The other thing is, um, I went to a Western Academy of Management and Philip Selznick, who was in his 80s, gave a talk. And I, one thing that stuck in my mind, he said, the problem with today's research is there's a lack of a systematic commitment to a program of research. So instead of just throwing ideas out and paper here, paper there, paper here, paper there, just because you want to publish to get tenure or promotion or whatever, a program of research is a tend to build upon what you're doing. And so um, the only reason I've got a large number of papers out there because I'm very old. But I think um, if you look at the number of papers I typically produce in a year, it's small, it's modest, it's not outstanding. But it's because of an attempt to build upon previous stuff. So we, we, we started with uh, studying organizational change, which was an accident, because somebody came into an MBA class and said, we think there's a change going on down the road. There's going to be a merger between uh, two accounting firms, which didn't happen as it turned out. But we went down there thinking this was an interesting change to study. 
And then we got captivated by professional firms because they're very different. They're like universities, except they've got tons of money. But they're obsessed with ideas, obsessed with values, etc. So we studied those. I was captivated and continued to research those kind of organisations. And we set up a little centre. We met people, other people at Harvard, Oxford, who were also interested in these firms. And we started to generate relationships, and that's why you get a lot of... Uh, collaborative work going on. Later in the career, of course, you get distracted by all the doctoral students you're working with. Uh, so it can be fun, but you get pulled in somewhat different directions because you're not actually doing the field work. Like with Amalia, she was coming in with her database for her thesis, but we were able to turn it into an institutional story um, because she was open to the idea. She visited Alberta and we had lots of interesting conversations. And that's typical of the way I've been working for the past 10, 20 years. We have visitors, doctoral students, junior faculty, etc., and we, we cooperate. Thank you. Okay, well, let's talk a bit more about how your interest in organizations yeah. evolved to include attention to the institutional kind? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. Well, what happened was this, that um, Bob Harnett and myself were reading and working on, uh, in England at the time, on UK local government. And we were visiting and taking information from local authorities um, because there was a major local government reform about to come out which was going to completely change the number of these organisations, some were going to get merged, etc. So we saw this as a major opportunity to study change, not an organisation change, but a whole raft of them moving from primarily small organisations, sort of doubling in size. How does that affect the way they organise themselves? So we did this. And we published and we, we, we came up with the notion that there are archetypal organisational forms, i.e. when an organisation is going to move and change in a major way, how do they decide the way they should organise and structure themselves? And what we learned was that the, these organisations were being very influenced by a number of ideas out there. They were really putting on the table archetypal possibilities and organisations were adapting and adopting them. So we published some of this in, in the Academy Journals and Christine Oliver at the York University in, in Ontario, Canada said, this is an institutional story. And Bob and I looked at each other and said, what is she talking about? We didn't know what institutional theory was. We, could, we were doing this study in the, the late 70s, early 80s and of course institutional theory didn't really take off to the late 80s, even though, you know, the classic works of 1977. Um, but she intrigued us, Christie, and so we began to research what is this thing called institutional change? And we realised that our concept of archetype really did resonate with that theoretical perspective, so we moved to that. So we've, we've ever since, um, we've moved between the organisational level the field level, which is the institutional term, and in the institutional level of analysis. So your attention to organizations and the way in which they exist in an institutional environment has been a topic that may have started out slowly 
How do you see that your work has moved along with the changes that have happened? Well, let's be clear here. The, 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 the interest in institutional change was triggered by Paul DiMaggio, who basically said, it's all right, you guys. He wasn't talking about us. He was talking about the, 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 the organization theory community generally. He was saying that, that you guys can't really explain institutional theory unless you can explain change, institutional change. And that triggered major uh, research initiatives into understanding institutional change. The problem with it, to a large extent, was it was not at the organisational level. It was what they called the field level. So social movement theory started to become very significant. How, for example, um, was AIDS uh, introduced into the medical world? Um, how was um, corporate social responsibility activities, how did they spread in the institutional world? Um, but there were some people, including ourselves, who were still interested in organisations. And how did organisations change when their social-cultural context was changing as well? Why did some uh, seem to be more responsive or receptive to what I would call institutional prescriptions compared to others? Um, and then how do they move from that? Now, this is... I'm going to really show my age now. This, isn't, this idea that organisations changing when there's an institutional change going on, is not new. Burns and Stoker in 1961 published a book, and everybody thinks it's all about mechanistic and organic organisations. Mechanistic organisations are highly bureaucratic and able to cope with highly certain situations. Organic organisations are much more flexible and can cope, cope with uncertainty. But the book's really about why is it that those organisations couldn't become the other? Why couldn't an organic organisation become bureaucratic? And in particular, why can't a bureaucratic organisation, like most of the organisations we suffer and work in, couldn't become more organic and flexible? And they, they were introducing the idea of power and politics inside organisations. So that's always resonated with me. Um, so institutional change, yes, we're interested in how it happens, but I'm particularly interested in the way it interacts with at the organisational level and how organisations may or may not be able to move and respond, especially to when there's multiple social-cultural prescriptions affecting the organisation. So I think we've covered some really interesting concepts here and some ideas that have changed over time. As we come towards the close of this podcast, uh, I want to ask you if you've got some advice for young scholars who are just starting out on their research path. Well, first of all, you're going to have to do research. And if it, it, you should do research that really excites you. Don't do research and don't get into the cranking out the papers just for the sake of it. That isn't what academic life is all about. If you're motivated to do it, and excited to do it, you'll enjoy it, and then it will become a good paper. That, that to me, is fundamental. That's one thing. Secondly, I might be a bit selfish here, I think it's useful having a senior person to talk to. In my case, I have Bob Hynings. He'll hate me saying he was a senior person, because he's not that much older than me. I think, he was about, I think he was about six years older than me. But he was a senior person understood academic game, understood how to do research, understood the, the challenge of how to write research in a clear and theoretically informative way. 
I was lucky in that respect. And I think if you can find somebody like that, and we've worked together for now for 40 years or more, if you can find somebody like that, great. Thirdly, go to a place, if you can, where what you're interested in is something that other people there are also interested in. And I think at the University of Alberta, we've, we've got that. We've had it for uh, decades now. And it, for me, it's a major, a major attraction. Thank you, Royston. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you today. Oh, you're very welcome. If our listeners would like any more information about Royston Greenwood's research or other podcasts in our series, please visit the Alberta School of Business Research webpage. And now, to close this episode of Speaking of Research, I'll remind you that I'm Professor Trish Ray at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.